We've been talking about godly leaders, and that's our theme for this month, and so we're going to pursue that, looking specifically at the text of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications of uh, overseers that are there, uh, and they're cataloged in the list that Brother Dennis is passing out to you. I hope I have enough. But here's the question I want to start with. Who should lead us? Now, that question is applicable, I think, to a lot of different uh, arenas. Certainly in every corporate endeavor that you and I might engage in, human endeavor, that this particular question would come up. If there's a group of us that are going to do something, somewhere along the line someone's going to ask, well, who should, be, who should be our leader? Who should make the decisions? To whom should we follow? And that's a, that's a rightful question. The unity of a group and even the effectiveness of a group many times is dependent upon good leadership. Uh, and it's a, almost a natural progression of things that somewhere along the line we would understand uh, how important leadership is and that someone would take the lead. But no leader of himself is a good leader unless individuals uh, that he is directing actually follow him. And so the aspect of submission and follow, following a leader is also an important uh, element of uh, successful endeavors, even human endeavors. But what I want to talk about this morning is not a human endeavor, but a spiritual one. And that is the work of the Lord's church, of a congregation as it does God's will. Uh, Who should be our leaders? Does it matter? Is it up to us to choose? Do we decide who will be our leader? Or even the, the, the type of leadership that we would submit ourselves to or under which we would work? I think that's a good question. We'll talk some about that this morning. If If you had four sons like my parents, then one thing you'd probably want to do somewhere along the line is get them in some type of endeavor together where they could all be together and they'd be out of your hair. And that's what Boy Scouts was about for us. All four of us, my brothers and I, were involved in Boy Scouts together. We are in the same troop, and because we lived in the same house, we are in the same patrol. A Boy Scout patrol is 10 or 12 boys, sometimes less, maybe sometimes more, depending on the troop, where, uh, that sort of spend all their time together. It's the, most, uh, it's the most concise unit, I suppose, of the hierarchy of Boy Scout leadership. And all my brothers and I were in the same patrol. And I remember uh, very distinctly getting together for that first patrol meeting and decide, trying to decide as we looked around at one another, we knew that somebody had to be the leader. Who's going to be the patrol leader? What I remember about that is nearly every eye turned to my brother Dan. And if you've ever met Dan, and some of you have, you realize that my brother has always been a type A personality. If he's in a group, he's telling you what to do. If there's something to be done, he has an idea, and his ideas are always better than anybody else's ideas, or at least they were for a while anyway. But he was always the one that got things done and knew which direction everybody ought to go. And so, understandably, he was the one who we looked to to be the patrol leader. He wasn't the oldest one in the group. I'm not sure he was even the smartest one in the group. He wasn't the biggest one in the group. But he was the leader. And there was a sense in which, I think, that we knew that he was the one that would lead us because he was the one who was willing to lead us. He was an individual, you see, who we might think of as being a born leader. Have you ever met some of those folks? That they just have that type of personality. That they know what people ought to be doing and they're willing to jump out in front and tell others and direct others. And they have, you see, a confidence in their own lives and what they're doing that portray them. Are there any born leaders in the church? 
When God tells us to get together and decide or appoint individuals to lead us, is this who we're looking for? You know, the appearance of qualifications in Paul's letters, the fact that the Apostle Paul would write to both Titus and to Timothy and say, these are the requirements of one who will be an overseer of the Lord's church, would help us to understand, I think, necessarily imply that leadership in God's church is not genetic. It's not based upon personality types. That it's not simply something someone might be born with as an aspect of their natural personality. A church might be able to easily recognize someone along those lines who would desire leadership and ultimately would be willing to lead. But it goes beyond just finding that person or even necessarily recognizing that person. What God demands from leaders is unnatural in many respects. It is not something that's genetic or that we pass along or even that we teach ourselves in self-motivation techniques or confidence training. Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, 28 that the Holy Spirit had made them the overseers of the church. Now I'm convinced that though it might be true that Paul was referencing a supernatural activity of the aspect of God telling through the Holy Spirit who should be elders and maybe that happened at Ephesus. I'm convinced the more natural understanding of that passage is that the Holy Spirit had revealed through the apostolic teaching, the type of individual that should be a leader and that these individuals who were now, by the time Acts chapter 20 rolls around, who were elders in the Lord's church, had met those qualifications. And so they were, they were overseers by the Holy Spirit because they were overseers through the applications of the words of the Spirit of God and not through the consensus of men. They weren't chosen because they were the, the most liked individual or even because they were the person who could get it done in the business world. If they were men that served God's church in the way that the Apostle Paul intended it to happen, and what he revealed in the apostolic doctrine, they were men who met spiritual qualifications. And so those qualifications are given to us as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. To help us choose who should lead us. To make that choice. Not based upon what we think, but ultimately based upon what the Holy Spirit reveals. Our theme text and 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins in verse 1. But the Apostle Paul says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband and one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then Paul included those qualifications again in his letter to Titus in chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a, man, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as, it has, as he has been taught, 
that he, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now those those qualities are listed on the page that we passed that Dennis passed out just a few moments ago or that you picked up in the back. This I think it's insightful sometimes to put those lists beside one another and do a comparative look at what's presented here. Not so that we can cross one out, cross things out across the list necessarily, but to recognize that this is a composite picture and that's the way the Holy Spirit intended it in these two different lists to do two different evangelists. They don't compete with one another. They're not necessarily made to fill in the blanks that maybe we have from one list to another. But they are to be viewed, I believe, in harmony one with one another. So that even though we may sometimes in translations have different words, what we're able to recognize by looking at the list together is that this paints a comprehensive picture of the type of man that should be put in office or that needs to be a leader in God's church. So what it contains are both negative and positive requirements these are some things that this person should be, and these are some things that this should, person should not be. I want us this morning to consider each uh, th- this particular uh, list, not in the sense of each characteristic. We're not going to go through them one by one. I might, uh, I might urge you, uh, as you study this on your own, and hopefully you will, because it's a serious, serious issue to think about the aspect of appointing leaders of a church, that it's a good to study the individual characteristics and to look them up and look up the definition, not only of the English word, but if you can, even the original terminology to have a better, fuller understanding of the meaning of each individual term. But I want to view them under four general headings that I believe present a character of the individual. Headings that attempt to give an overall picture of what the elder ought to be and who he ought to be. In verse 1, the apostle says, "If any verse of chapter First Timothy three says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work." That's from the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation. When Paul refers to one who aspires to be an overseer, some translations say desire. He's not describing someone who seeks an office. He's not describing someone who wants power, who wants to be put in a position. Not necessarily, necessarily even in the aspect of what we generally think in the human terms of leading. Though someone when aspires to be an overseer, certainly he is aspiring to the aspect of leadership. But what we recognize is that what Paul describes later on, what comes after verse 1, is a description not of an office of authority, but rather of the qualifications of an individual who is ready to do a work. And so what the person aspires to is he aspires to get busy. He aspires to be, you see, consumed in the aspect of shepherding a flock and doing the work. What Paul calls here a noble work, and the original word there is the word telos, which means good. Good in the sense of honorable. There are two specific words in the Greek language that are most translated good in the New Testament. One is gagathos and kalos. And kalos has to do with the aspect of something that is good as, a, as in the sense of being honorable. Something that is looked up to or respectable. Whereas gagathos has to do with something that's right as opposed to wrong. So it's good or it's bad in that sense. Here Paul uses a word that means honorable or useful. And so what he's saying is that the work of the overseer is a work that demands respect and ultimately presents respect in how it's accomplished. Later on, Titus will use the word again for good in his list of qualifications. But he uses a different word when he says that the person must be a lover of good. And there was philagathos, which means someone who loves or desires things to be done in a right, a morally right way. And both of those things are involved in the work of an overseer. He is an individual who desires 
a work that will present honor to God and honor to others. And when he does that, that's what is accomplished. He's also a person who loves something that's virtuous, something that's morally good. But then in verse 2, he says, a, bush, a bishop thus then must be. The word bishop there is the word episkopos, which we sometimes translate it by the word overseer. Here's a simple question. What does the word must mean? If you go to the theme park and there it says, you, have to be, you must be as tall as Yogi Bear to ride this ride. Can you explain that to your kids? Well, no, you have to be this tall. I know you're almost that tall, but you have to be this tall and you can't ride the ride. Ever had that discussion? (laughs) The aspect of what does must mean? It means that it's a requirement. And that's what this particular word means too. The Constitution says you have to be 35 years old to be President of the United States. Any exception to that? Can someone come and say, well, I'm 34 and a half. I'm almost there. I'm as smart as any 35-year-old here. No, you have to be 35 years old or you're not qualified you don't meet the requirements of the position so what Paul says right up front as he writes to Timothy is that these particular qualities are not optional they're not even presenting the aspect of something that's optimal that this is what we would like it to be what God is saying right up front is that these are the requirements that must be possessed before a person is appointed to the office that the person has to already be or already have these qualities or already not be doing these things in his life in order to be an overseer. So that's pretty simple what the word must means in this passage. We might notice as we peruse the qualifications that some of these things that Paul mentions here are relative and some of them are absolute. By that we mean that some of them you either have or you don't have. The person that's going to be appointed must be a man. He used the word anar, which means you see the aspect of man in terms of gender. He must be a man. Now, you're either a man or a woman. I know that's not culturally correct today, but you are either a man or a woman. And that's an absolute requirement. It says to be a husband of one wife or a father. You're either that or you're not. But then some of these qualities a person could possess... But it can possess, a person could possess them in different degrees or relative degrees to other individuals. So a person might be apt to teach, but he can't teach as well as someone else, or he's not as able to teach as someone else. I'm getting ahead of myself. A person might be holy, but he's not absolutely holy. God's the only one who's absolutely holy. The aspect you see of, uh, of the uh, different qualities that are involved here may come in relative terms. But the person either possesses it or they do not possess it. They're pure. They can be described that way, though they're not absolutely pure. And it may be, obviously we recognize, that in the process of being appointed an overseer, that an individual would grow, even in regards to those qualities by which he was first assessed and appointed. So when we look at this aspect of the type of qualifications are here, we recognize that a person cannot be void of any of them. He must possess them in some sense. But looking at them, we're not looking for someone who's absolutely perfect in every regard, even in regard to the things that are mentioned here. Because we'll not find that person. None of us are perfect. And there are all of these areas, that many of them, most of them that even reflect upon the character of the Christian who's not an overseer, are areas in which we grow, we develop as Christians. So who should lead us? 
One of the areas I think we could somewhat categorize these qualities is the aspect of character. If a man's going to lead the Lord's church, he's to be a man of character. He is to be blameless. That means above reproach. There's not ongoing sin in his life. There's not something you see that he can be charged with. He cannot be indicted of any moral defect that's going on. He is a faithful husband. What the text actually says, a one-woman man. He's an individual you see that's committed and faithful to his wife, to his one wife. He is a peaceful man who does not look to fight or strike back. He's an individual who's calm-headed and therefore he can't easily be angered or provoked to anger. He is self-disciplined in his life. The word temperate means someone you see who's in control of the desires of his life and the affairs of his life. He's not given to wine. He doesn't engage in the drinking lifestyle. Literally, the text there says he does not stay near the wine. And if you notice the use of that terminology, it means he doesn't tip the wine. He's an individual then who has his life separated or sanctified from the lifestyle of the world. He thinks clearly, soberly. He's not frivolous or insincere. Everything's not a joke. He's able to talk about things in a very serious manner. He's honest. He's a man of integrity. He's not greedy for money. He's not moved by the things that money can buy. He cannot be bought. He's not a new Christian. He's an individual who the experiences of living before God, you see, will not allow him to be swept up in the doctrines that come here and there. He's an individual who has conviction. He's a man who has developed a good reputation among those who are on the outside. Individuals that he works with, individuals that are not Christians, see him in a different light in his everyday life, think well of him. So he's a man of character. He's also a man of proven ability. And some of these qualities can easily be plugged into this category. He's a, in a sense, he's a person who must be already displaying the ability to do the work before he's appointed to the work. We don't usually think about it that way, but that's what God's saying here, is that there's similarities between what this fellow is already doing and what he's getting ready to do. And the congregation needs to be able to recognize that. That he can be trusted to rule the house of God because he's already ruling his own house. So he has to have a house or have a family. And so he's demonstrated his ability to rule his house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. He's taught his children to respect him, to obey him, to, to obey him as a father, and ultimately to obey God. They are, they are children that are faithful, I believe, to God as well as to the, as to the, to the father. He does not rule his family with an iron fist. He's not an authoritarian tyrant. He's an individual that's compassionate and caring. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't say one thing and do another. He doesn't ask others individuals to do something he's unwilling to do himself. He rules with dignity and he's respected for the authority that he exercises in his home. His children have followed his teaching. They're not reckless or insubordinate to authority. They're not known as individuals that rebel against authority. He's a steward. But not just any steward, he's a blameless steward. When he's put in charge of the things that belong to others, he's faithful to that charge. He's an individual that cares about other people's feelings, that cares about other people's physical possessions. Now, looking at this aspect from the proven ability of the man who would be appointed a leader, Paul provides us a logical conclusion in this matter, I think, that in many ways helps us to understand what he's getting at. He says if he does not display his ability to manage his own family, that he's not capable of managing the spiritual household of God. That the character of the husband and the father in the home 
is an absolute essential quality of one who would be appointed to be an elder of the church. Not just in the aspect of how many children he has or whether or not all his children are Christians. We can come to different conclusions about that. But what's presented here is a character or a proven ability to lead a family in which, in where there is respect for authority and where there is submission to authority or an individual respects others as a good steward. Also, this man must be a man who relates well to others. The person Paul describes here is a man who values other people. And he seeks to have and is established in his life honest and beneficial relationships with others. So what kind of person is he? Well, he's not headstrong. The, the text uses the word, uses the word self-willed. There's some folks you see that want their way no matter what. And they've developed that as personal trait that they get what they want because they work for what they want and they put other people aside. The elder's material is not that kind of person. He respects the needs of others. He is patient even when others are not patient with him. He is just, a word that means equitable, that he wants to balance the scales. He's always seeking to do what is fair and what is honest with other individuals. He is a holy person, which means he seeks to be inwardly molded in the image of God. He cares about what's right and wrong. He doesn't want to be like the world. He wants to be like God. This person is not a quarrelsome bully who incites violence in others. He doesn't seek a fight and he never resorts to violence himself. He is hospitable. He is a man who freely gives to others. He opens his home to those who are in need. To those that are even strangers, he opens his home. And he uses his home for the spiritual purposes of the kingdom of God. He loves and supports what is good. And there's that word agathos. Some translations put the word men here. He, he is a lover of good men. Which is an interesting addition to the text itself because the word there in italics. It supposes that this person not only supports what is good, in an, you see, in a principled way, but he's an individual who stands up and supports people that do what is good. So he's not a coward. If other people are trying to do what's right, he'll stand beside them and give them assistance. He listens well to others. He seeks to make good decisions. The text uses the word sober-minded or reasonable. He can be talked to because relationships are important to him. He doesn't throw people out when they disagree with him. He has a genuine love for the sheep that he would serve. And that's displayed in his ability and his willingness to connect with every person in the congregation. He knows people. Therefore, he's reasonable with them. And then lastly, he is a man who understands and communicates the Scriptures to others. I believe when we look at this aspect of the work of the overseer, the elder, that this is a particular characteristic that runs through all of this. And by that I mean there's none of these things we've talked about so far, being blameless or pure or holy or reasonable or just, that possibly could have any meaning in the person's life unless he got those things from God. How does a person get to be that way? Well, he's not born with it. A person gets to be that type of person because of the influence of the Spirit of God in his life. Because they have spent some time in Scripture and they know what God says and they know what God wants and they make efforts toward being pleasing, obedient to the Word of God. So that's incorporated in here. Not only in the context of the qualities themselves being spiritual qualities, but also in the way it's communicated in the text. Paul says this person must be one who holds fast the faithful word. Titus 1 verse 9 says he must hold firm to the sure word as he's been taught. The idea of holding fast is a word that means to be convicted, 
to take a stand. The elder has to be someone you see who's not tossed about with every new doctrine that comes along. He is convicted of what he knows the Bible says and he stands on those convictions. He studied it through. He knows what the Bible says and he knows what truth is. He must be able to teach it to others. To, to be able to communicate the truth to others. Not only by example, and that's certainly implicit in these particular qualifications, but also didactic instruction, standing before a group or across a kitchen table with someone and opening the Bible and telling them what the Bible says, teaching them the things that they need to know. Now that's borne out, I believe, not only in the specific requirements that are presented here, but in the image that we spoke about last week, that the overseer is a shepherd. The personal and fundamental responsibility of a shepherd is to feed the flock. That's what he's there for. If he's unwilling to do it, if he has reservations of doing it, if he simply wants to put it in the hands of others, that he's not qualified to be the shepherd. So the idea of being a shepherd of a flock goes beyond just hiring a preacher to do some teaching or organizing Bible classes so other people can teach. Intrinsic in in this particular quality is the idea of personal responsibility to teach. He must be able then to stand before a congregation. Even at times when it's not going to be received well. Even what's going to be taught, you see, is going to be rejected by some. He is a man who holds fast the faithful word. Not only distinguish it between truth and error, but when it comes down to the rub of it, he's able to convict the gainsayer to stand up with the truth, you see, and refute those or condemn those who teach error, is what the text actually says. Not an easy task. Not only does it take knowledge, but it takes courage and fortitude. It takes the ability to have faith and trust in God. And it takes humility to be courageous. Those qualities then, as we've looked at them and maybe hurriedly gone over them, certainly as we look at them this way, give us a composite picture. We can see a man who meets these qualities. We can recognize that this is the type of person that God wants. And that gives us a beginning point to look because sometimes even the composite look will immediately disqualify some who are not this type of person. But does it really matter in terms of the text? Is this a time for overseers? Is it a good time for elders? Or when is a good time for elders? I heard that question addressed by individuals talking about maybe this particular local church or this particular group of Christians. Well, we're going to have elders someday, but it's not really a time. It's not really our time to have elders. Maybe later on. And if they're thinking about and they're contemplating the aspect of whether that they have been qualified to serve, then that has some credibility to it. And certainly, that presents the very biblical perspective that men should not be appointed to task until they meet the qualifications. But when Paul wrote to Titus, the young evangelist was teaching and preaching in the island of Crete. And this particular island, just off the southern coast of Italy was a very distinct place socially and religiously. And Paul had left Titus in Crete for a purpose. He tells us in the beginning that I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. So think about the context of those qualities that we just talked about. Was it a time for elders? Paul says, obviously it was, when he writes to Titus and says, I want you to appoint elders. I want you to set things in order. But why were elders so important at this time? Well, it might be that we could say that that it was time for elders because 
something was out of order. That's what Paul told him. He said you need to set things in order and you need to appoint elders. Well, what was out of order? What made overseers so important and urgent for the time? You look at the context again. After Paul gives the qualifications that we just studied in Titus chapter 1, notice how he addresses these questions. For there are also many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by the teaching for dishonest gain that they should gain what they should not. One of their very own prophets says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and believing, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now what Paul describes there is the place where Timothy was working. Can you imagine being a young preacher and you get, and you get a letter saying, okay, once you've gotten... You need to appoint some elders in these churches. And this is the kind of place that you're working in. Now, not that Titus didn't know it, but for the older preacher who's mentoring him to say, you're working in a very evil place. You're working in a very, you see, ungodly place. Even one of, your own, even one of their own prophets said that every Cretan is evil, lazy glutton. And Paul says, that's true. Now, Paul wasn't trying to be disrespectful to anybody. But he was presenting to Titus a picture of the environment where he was working for a purpose. What a place to preach the gospel. What a place to to take to try to get individuals to be Christians and to live a Christian life. What a place to have a church and to try to see a church grow. Rebellious people who don't submit to authority. Idle talkers who go around deceiving everybody and leading everybody astray. Those who follow fables rather than truth to spend their time in superstitions. False religionists who go into homes and lead whole families astray by teaching things that are not right. Only doing that to enrich themselves so they can make themselves rich. They profess to know God, but they show by what they do they don't know God at all. They are, in Paul's words, detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Where do you live? What kind of society do you live in? You see, this is where we live. Now, we're not in Crete. We're in Fort Myers. Or we're in America. So maybe Paul should have just said to Timothy, or to Titus, this is a pretty bad place. Do the best you can. We'll go someplace else. Paul doesn't say that. After giving this, in the context of giving this very, you see, dark picture of society in which Titus is establishing churches and preaching the truth, he says you need to put things in order and appoint elders. That's what he told him to do. So is it a time for elders or overseers? We live in a time where lying is commonplace and acceptable, where many people are lazy and expect the government to take care of them, provide for their needs. A society is characterized by gross immorality, by evil on every side, where human life is devalued and people don't really care about anything that is satisfying their desires like brute beasts. Of individuals you see who have no respect for what is sanctified or sacred in life, certainly not the words of God. They are an overindulgent society that care nothing about spiritual values. What should we do as God's people? Well, let's not miss this. 
but connected with that very dark picture and the task that's set before us Paul's telling Titus it is a time for overseers it's a time for leaders we need leaders to put things in order elders who will use the truth of the scripture to silence the deceivers and the idle talkers of the day we need elders with the knowledge and courage to rebuke those who teach error and encourage others that are in the faith to remain in the faith and not be deceived in a time like this the Lord's church needs elders overseers and shepherds how can the church be successful in the work of preaching the gospel in a society like this of bringing the lost up without godly leaders who will hold the fort, so to speak? Now let me make this connection. If we're serious about doing the work that God's given us to do as a church, then we have to be serious about having godly leaders. We can't do it any other way. We must be serious about pointing shepherds over the flock if we care about the flock. Not only those who are in the flock, but only those who will be brought to the flock. I'm convinced that it may be that some congregations go years and years and years without elders, not even seeking to appoint elders. Not just because they don't have qualified men, because many places don't have qualified men, but because they're content to remain just as they are. Everything's going pretty smooth. We meet two or three times a week and things seem to be going okay. Why rock the boat? Why do we need to worry about elders? We're doing pretty good. And I believe that the words Paul tells to Timothy and Titus here would shake us to our boots in that regard. Because Paul did not tell Titus just get things in an even keel and keep them that way and everything will be okay. That's not good enough. We need to be teaching the lost. We need to be bringing people into the fold of God. We need to be speaking the truth and standing up for the truth and serious about growing and accomplishing more in the kingdom of God. And the only way that we can do that by God's design is to seriously pursue the appointment of leaders. There's another aspect here as we, as, as we conclude. Why is it a time for elders in the Lord's church today? Because every Christian needs shepherds. Now, the word every is very important in that statement. Certainly we recognize that sheep need shepherds. you got sheep, you need someone to take care of them. But we tend to think that shepherds are really for those sheep you know, who might wander off. Sheep that, that, that might fall down and hurt themselves. Or there are sheep you see who really are not very good at looking after themselves. They're sick sheep. They're new sheep. They're not so smart sheep. And those are the sheep that need shepherds. That's not the picture. The picture here is that every sheep needs a shepherd or needs shepherds. <coughs> Scriptures don't teach that shepherds are just for seekers sick and weak and lowly sheep that don't know the way. It's implicit in the role of the elder himself as a shepherd that he's responsible not just for some of the Christians in the flock, but of every Christian that he's among. He is responsible for every soul that's there. Why does God command, think about this, why does God command a plurality of elders? Why is it implicit in the commandments that you can't just appoint one man over a church? That you have to appoint more than one man? Well, we can talk about the tenses of the verb and the aspect that it talks about elders and deacons, plural, in all those texts. And that's true. We could say, well, it's to balance out authority so that one man can't become a dictator. There's another fellow there as that you see a check and balance to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's true too, isn't it? Let me submit to you another reason. That God established elders in plurality because the shepherd needs a shepherd. Because the shepherd needs a shepherd. Because he's in the process of growing and he as well. 
susceptible to the things the devil can bring into his life. And he needs someone to watch out for his soul. Who will watch out for him while he's watching out for someone else? So the shepherds are the shepherd's shepherds by God's design. Every Christian needs a shepherd. And that's why this is the time to pursue it. Submission is the heart of applying the gospel message to ourselves. Submission is not just something to be put on somebody else or to be talked about in a Bible class in the definition of words. Submission is at the heart of the gospel message as we apply it to ourselves. If we would learn anything by being Christians, we must learn to submit our lives to others and to God. And that's a hard thing for us. Maybe one of the challenging things in our life is to learn to live under the submission to someone else. But elders provide that for us. Given the, op- given the responsibility to lead, we are placed under the responsibility to follow. And we need God- godly leaders to submit to. We need to learn from them. This is a time for elders because it's a time for the necess- necessity of submission and humility. You remember Dan, my brother, that born-again leader who took charge? And the way he's still that way, in many ways, when the family gets together. But Dan's a shepherd. He is a leader of God's church. And I would submit to you, knowing my brother, that he was not appointed to that, nor does he do a good job in doing that because of who he was, but of who he's become. He's a submissive man. He's a humble man. He's a leader. Because leaders are not born unless they're born again. And that's what leadership is all about. It's not in ourselves, but it's in what God gives us and what God provides for us through Spirit that He makes us what we ought to be as men to lead our families and ultimately to lead the Lord's church. All of that comes by emulation. Isn't that fascinating? It all comes by emulation. Because God does not ask us to do something that He hasn't done for us. So when Peter says that we need to commit ourselves to the true shepherd and the overseer of our souls, the one who died for us, he's presenting to us, to everyone who would aspire to be a shepherd or any of those who would follow shepherds, the example, the ideal, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who humbly gave himself for us so that you and I might do the work of God and ultimately be saved. Will you be a child of God? Every godly overseer works to bring people to Christ, works to bring people to salvation. It's not about growing numbers. It's not about having an organization. It's not about exercising power and positions of authority. It's about saving souls, about rescuing the sheep from the cliff, about bringing people back from the darkness into the light. And so when we think about that, we recognize that that's the spiritual purpose that all of us have as God's people. Will you submit to Christ by obeying the gospel message? Will you be a Christian? Will you follow your shepherd? While we stand and while we sing, we invite you to come.